Hello and welcome to Cause High Viz. My name is David Hasty, Associate in Cause Chambers Westgarth's Construction Practice Group, and I'm joined by partner Andrew McCormack, Special Counsel Mary Syracuse, and Co-Director of Construction Law Studies at Melbourne University, Wayne Jogic. Today's podcast looks at three significant decisions covered in Cause's August 2018 Construction and Projects Legal Update. They are, firstly, uh, Seymour White Constructions and Oswell Brothers, which is a New South Wales securitative payment case where the claimant is insolvent. Secondly, uh, the case of Brighton Australia and Multiplex Constructions, which is an important Victorian case considering the enforceability of time limits on uh, the Australian Consumer Law Section 18 claims. But I thought we might begin with an English Court of Appeal decision, an interesting one, called North Midland Building Limited and Sidon Homes, which is a case considering concurrent delay and the prevention principle. Now, Wayne, um, I might throw to you, as I understand you've had a close look at this North Midland Building and Sidon Homes case. Um, concurrent delay, it's notoriously a difficult topic. The case law is complex. What does it say? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Concurrent delay certainly is a, a tricky topic. So what I might do is just step back for a second and talk about what concurrent delay is, not in a, a finicky sort of way, but just so that the idea is clear. So let's just imagine you have a head contract and there's some delay, and that delay is caused by something for which the contractor gets some relief, but there's a roughly equal sort of cause for which the contractor doesn't get relief. So that's what we have in mind. Basic question is, does the contractor get an extension of time? And the cases are really quite complex and differ across, across jurisdictions. So that's a tricky area. Now, the reality is people try to contract around this. They try to say what they want to have happen in the event that there's concurrent delay. And that's, in fact, exactly what we saw in this case. It's a fairly unassuming set of facts. It's about the construction of a farmhouse and some, admittedly, fairly substantial outbuildings around it and there they included a clause and if you just uh, bear with me for a second I'm going to give you the critical part of that clause what they say is this any delay caused by a relevant event which is concurrent with another delay for which the contractor is responsible shall not be taken into account and that's one of the many ways that people can try to deal with concurrent delay. So maybe we could redraft that and refine it a little, but essentially it's a fairly clear clause. So the effect of that is that where there's concurrent delay, the contractor doesn't get an extension of time. So what the Court of Appeal said, a strong Court of Appeal, what they said was that this is a fairly clear clause. It should be given its plain and ordinary meaning. We should give effect to that. And if you're not going to do that, you need to have a pretty good reason not to. Now, and um, Wayne, as I understand it, this is where the prevention principle effectively kicks in. That's right. So the prevention principle, of course, could be that sort of very significant reason. So let's just imagine a situation like in our, our head contract that we're talking about. So let's say you have a delay. That delay is caused by some qualifying cause of delay. You know, maybe it's bad weather and the contractor gets an extension of time normally for that. But maybe, just as it happens, there's something like an act of prevention. Maybe the principal orders a variation and it happens that that causes delay that overlaps with that more or less completely. So you can see in that situation there might be a question about the operation of the prevention principle. Because the idea is that the principal might be doing something to slow 
the, the, to make it impossible for the contractor to finish on time. Uh, and so that's really the prevention principle issue. Now, that could be troubling if the prevention principle operates like a, a rule, a policy rule of law, in the way, for example, that the rule against penalties does. So that's a policy position that the common law takes, and you can't contract around it. It doesn't matter what words you use, you can't contract around that principle directly. And so the Court of Appeal here had to deal with that question directly, and they said very clearly the prevention principle is not that type of policy rule like the prohibition on penalties. What it is, it seems, is an implied term, and that would be consistent with some admittedly limited, but with the Australian authority. So the idea then is that if the prevention principle operates as an implied term, you can ask that by an express term. And so the reality is here, there was a clear express term and the Court of Appeal gave effect to it. So that's really the take-home point of this case, that if your contract deals with concurrent delay and says that essentially to the extent of any concurrency, the contractor doesn't get an extension of time, then the courts are likely to uphold that. So a clear position in the Court of Appeal in England and Wales, and I think it's very likely to be the position in Australia as well. But this is a very useful case because it says a fair bit about these two important topics of concurrency and also the fundamental nature of the prevention principle. Well, thank you very much for that, Wayne. Um, Andrew, I might now throw to you, in the Seymour White and Oswald Brothers decision, I understand that the New South Wales Supreme Court has chosen not to follow the Victorian Court of Appeal. Perhaps you could give our listeners a brief summary of the issue in dispute and what exactly this disagreement was about. Thank you, David. Yes, this is certainly an interesting uh, case and an interesting judgment by the New South Wales Supreme Court. Um, The issue at the heart of the decision is whether a company that's in liquidation remains entitled to pursue its rights under the New South Wales Security of Payment legislation. Uh, The issue was actually considered... Uh, recently by the Victorian Court of Appeal in the case of Facade Treatment Engineering and Brookfield Multiplex. What the Victorian Court of Appeal decided was by reference to the Victorian Security of Payment legislation, which is very similar to that in New South Wales, um, the court decided that the legislation required a claimant to be someone who has undertaken to and continued to carry out construction work. Um, That meant that a claimant who was in liquidation failed that definition because they were no longer able to uh, carry out construction work and therefore, if they couldn't be a claimant, they couldn't pursue their remedies under the Act. The first issue uh, in Seymour White and Oswald that was considered was whether uh, Oswald had in fact uh, started their adjudication application in time under the legislation. The adjudication application was served in time and the adjudicator made a determination. However, before uh, Oswald Brothers could proceed to enforce that adjudication, the uh, company which was in administration uh, was then wound up and entered into liquidation. So the question before uh, the New South Wales Supreme Court was whether the claimant then being in liquidation could still nevertheless enforce uh, its rights under the Act to seek uh, an adjudication certificate, which it could then enforce to claim payment against Seymour White. Now, in light of the Victorian 
Court of Appeals decision in facade treatment, what that meant was unless the New South Wales Supreme Court held that decision to be plainly wrong, they were bound to follow that decision and would have uh, been compelled to find against Oswald Brothers and say, no, sorry, you cannot pursue uh, your adjudication enforcement rights under the Security of Payment legislation. However, happily for Oswald Brothers, um, the New South Wales Supreme Court, uh, Justice Stevenson, found that the decision of the Victorian Court of Appeal was in fact plainly wrong. He could find nothing within the provisions of the Security of Payment legislation in New South Wales that would compel the conclusion that to undertake means not only to undertake to carry out construction work, but also to continue to perform such activities. Um, he made some observations about the way the Victorian Court of Appeal had failed to take proper account of the definition of claimants under the Victorian legislation. But ultimately, um, Justice Stevenson held that the status of a party as a claimant depends on whether they legitimately served a payment claim for construction work or not. Uh, there was nothing in the text of the New South Wales legislation that indicated that a claimant would somehow lose its status as a claimant by virtue of, of it being wound up and entering into liquidation. Now, that uh, decision is, is interesting for two reasons. Uh, firstly, it seems uh, perhaps a more logical outcome, um, but secondly, uh, it raises the prospect of there being a divergence of opinion between New South Wales and Victoria in the context of what is extremely similar, in fact, almost identical uh, legislation on these points. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether the Victorian courts, when they come to consider the issue again, uh, elect to follow the path of the New South Wales Supreme Court and reverse uh, the decision that was made in facade treatments. Okay, Andrew, thanks for that. That's interesting. So did liquidation have any effect at all on the adjudication claim? The short answer is uh, yes, it did. Um, whilst the New South Wales Supreme Court disagreed with the Victorian Court of Appeal on the definition of who is a claimant and when they might stop being a claimant, uh, the court agreed with the findings of the Victorian Court of Appeal on the application of Section 553C of the Corporations Act. Now, that section contains a mechanism which states that where a company is in liquidation, account must be taken of what is due from one party to another party in respect of what are known as mutual dealings. Now, any cross-claims and defences that Seymour White may have had um, are mutual dealings that are protected under Section 553C. Taking all that into account, uh, Justice Stevenson found that Section 553 applied automatically on the winding up of Oswald and therefore ordered that any judgment that was obtained by Oswald arising from the filing of the adjudication certificate uh, would be stayed until a full account of the parties' liabilities to each other uh, was undertaken under the mandatory set-off procedure under 553C of the Corporations Act. 
So whilst it's uh, good news, at least in New South Wales, and potentially in jurisdictions that are similar to New South Wales, such as Queensland, and as I said before, we'll see what Victoria makes of this recent decision, uh, for the liquidators to pursue um, and seek to enforce adjudication uh, determinations they have in their favour, the ultimate outcome of those adjudication uh, determinations will be stayed in terms of how it impacts on the transfer of money between parties until the final determination of um, the two contracting parties' rights against each other. So on one sense it was a, a win uh, for those who are companies in liquidation, uh, but in practical terms no money would immediately flow as it would with a normal adjudication decision until the final outcome of deter determining the rights of the parties against each other. So rights of set-off and counterclaims could still result in that adjudication award not uh, producing any money being paid to the company in liquidation. Well, thanks for that, Andrew. That um, That's incredibly detailed. Um, um, Mary, I might throw to you now. Um, so the case that you're going to talk about is Brighton Australia and Multiplex Constructions. Now, this is an interesting decision in the Victorian Supreme Court um, which effectively overruled a court-appointed special referee to find that liability pursuant to Section 18 of the Australian Consumer Law cannot be excluded by express words of a contract. Now, as I understand it, a party to a contract cannot then be effectively time-barred from bringing a Section 18 claim so long as it's within the six-year limitation period. Um, Mary, could you perhaps give our listeners a brief summary of the key findings of this decision? And secondly, perhaps maybe identify some practical implications that you see arising from this decision. Thanks, David. Um, this case involved a subcontract that contained a clause which purported to um, impose a time bar on claims under Section 18 of the Australian Consumer Law. That time bar required a notice to be provided within seven days of a particular claim um, arising or a party becoming aware of such a claim. There was a special referee appointed in this case. Um, the special referee actually upheld the time bar, so he, he disallowed the claims that had been made by the subcontractor in that case. Um, the subcontractor, who was Brighton Australia, they then sought to convince the Supreme Court to not adopt the special referee's findings. Um, in doing so, the court actually considered the public policy implications of the provisions of the Australian Consumer Law, in particular um, the reasons behind the relief that a party might seek, pursuant to section 236, subsection 2 of the Australian Consumer Law. And the court ultimately held that it would be absurd to enforce a contractual time bar uh, where a claim was required to be brought within a very short period of time, for example, within an, an hour of that claim materialising. Um, secondly, uh, the court held that extreme provisions such as the one in this particular case um, would preclude a claim from being brought in most circumstances, except for, the court says, by the most punctilious of claimants. Um, thirdly, uh, the court also held that restricting the remedy available by imposing the time bar would amount to an unacceptable interference with public policy. So ultimately, the court overturned the special referee's finding. That's really interesting because um, I think um, us as uh, back-end lawyers in particular always trying to find ways around time bars, so it's nice to have that little bit of guidance 
from the court um, with regards to the, Austra- the, the application of the uh, Australian consumer law. That kind of leads me into the second point that I flagged a bit earlier. Um, what do you see as being the, the practical implications arising from this decision? Well, David, I think the reality here is that um, contract drafters need to be a bit more careful and exercise a bit more caution when they're trying to draft time bar clauses um, to put into contracts, particularly with respect to claims under Section 18 of the Australian Consumer Law. Um, I think particular attention needs to be paid to carve out those claims from time bars because even if they are purported to be included in a time bar like that, the courts won't actually um, enforce the time bar for such claims. Um, Secondly, I think, and most importantly, both claimants and recipients of claims under contracts need to understand how the court has made the finding in this particular case, because when receiving claims for deceptive or misleading conduct, um, those claims now need to be assessed materially based on when the claim actually arises, regardless of when a notice was issued or a claim was actually made. The timing of the claim is only relevant insofar as was it made within the applicable six-year limitation period or not. If it was, then the fact that a notice of delay or a claim might not have been made within a particular uh, contractually specified period of time may not be relevant. However, if the claim is made outside of the six-year period, then the time bar uh, would be enforced. Andrew, Mary, Wayne, thank you very much for joining me today. My name is David Hastie and thanks very much for listening. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.